Hello and welcome to This Just Is. My name is Ian Friedman. I hope that you and your loved ones are doing as well as can be expected during these very difficult times. The past several weeks have been very intense. Beyond COVID, which is obviously not going away, at least here in America anytime soon, we are seeing protests unlike anything we've seen since the 1960s, and for good reason. After the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent protests on police brutality, I wasn't really sure how best to curate this podcast. As a white cisgendered male of privilege, how can I be an advocate for positive change and equality? How can I discuss the issues at hand in a way that feels genuine and true to the mission of this podcast? How can I generate a place for real conversation that helps move the dialogue forward in a positive way? How can I potentially help to educate others in a way that's reasonable and makes sense to them? I thought about it a lot, which is part of the reason why I didn't release a podcast sooner. I didn't want to do anything haphazardly. I wanted to make sure it was something meaningful, and I'm also nervous and, frankly, a little scared. I'm unsure if me talking about racial issues will be received well. I've not really had to talk about race in this way before, and therefore, I'm certain that my attempts at this may be clunky, sometimes misinformed, but at the core, I want to learn. I want to start building the strength and courage to talk openly and honestly about racial inequality in our country and take steps towards active and real change. I'm also open to being wrong, hearing different people's perspectives, and having these perspectives inform my experience on this planet during my lifetime. The more we learn, the better we do. In order for me to make this feel real and important, I wanted to talk to people who I love and respect and I know would have wonderfully insightful things to say. So I reached out to my good friends, Kellen and Kelsey Parker. They're siblings that I used to work with. They're both media executives and highly successful ones at that. We became quite close over the course of our time working together. We've had some in-depth conversations about race and our personal and professional interactions. And I always appreciated their candor and perspective. I knew that we'd be able to have a good conversation about the issues at hand and also their own personal experiences of being black in America what that's like and what it means to them. This is one of the more important and educational conversations I've had in recent memory, and I hope that you feel the same. So here they are, Kellen and Kelsey Parker. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I've, I've, I haven't had two guests yet, so it's a little, it's hairy with one, so it's hairier with, with two. Um, but it's better that we're doing it in remote, you know, all remote locations. So yeah. It just makes sense. I wish, like I was telling Kelsey before, Kellen, I'm like, I just wish I had a space and you guys could just come in and we could sit down and just talk person to person. But I don't want to, you know, we don't, I can't get each other coronavirus, unfortunately, as much as I'm trying to spread you it. You really want to give us coronavirus? Just yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been those, coughing on people. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing that. I do want those antibodies, though, so I can just like live yeah. my life. Yeah. I don't, have, uh, I don't have them. No, I don't either. I got tested. But thank you guys for uh, for coming on and talking to me. I miss you guys. I've been telling you that I really do. I haven't. I miss. I miss a lot of people, but I miss. I miss you guys a lot. And the most? Uh, are we at the top of the list? You're at the top. You guys are definitely at the top. I mean, I saw you guys every single day for I don't know three years or something, and then all of a sudden it just ended. Yeah. Um, so that's always weird. But I, you know, I started doing this podcast to sign of like just the idea of self-improvement and, and betterment and being more open and, you know, 
being okay with making mistakes and trying to just figure out how you can become a better version of yourself not and ultimately work towards becoming the best version of yourself. And I think a huge part of that is like learning and learning things that you might think, oh, I know that. And you're like, you don't really know that at all and being open to that. And so last week or two weeks ago, when all the, and I'm going to talk for a little bit and then I'm going to want to hear everything that you guys have to say, but just some backstory is like, I had Matt Ingebretson on, who's fantastic and lo a lovely guy. And, and we, this was before everything happened with George Floyd and, and BLM kind of, and everything coming to a head. And it was like, during when I was getting the recordings back, I was like, I'm going to have to release this episode. I have to say something before this episode, but I don't know what to say. And also we didn't talk about any of this stuff because it wasn't in the zeitgeist at the moment. And how weird would it be for me to say something before this episode and then just have me and Matt talking about bullshit, not bullshit, but you know, like <laughs> not, not what's like the, the pressing thing. And so I had this whole preamble that I wrote and I was, I talked to Brooke, my wife about it and I read it to her and she was like, look, I think what you wrote is really great, but I don't think that you should do any preamble. I think you should just like talk to your friends and listen and hear what they have to say, because now's not the time that people really want to hear what you have to say. And I was like, good point. Good note. Uh, I got it. Um, and so that's when and I had already decided that I wanted to talk to you guys about this, but, but it was just good to hear her say that. And so that's part of the reason why I wanted to, to bring you guys on to hear what you have to say. And so I'm going to ask some general questions. I'm going to caveat everything that if I say anything clunky or that's coming from a place that you seemingly is of ignorance, know that it probably is coming from a place of ignorance and I'm apologizing in advance for it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I also want to caveat everything that by saying that I, I'm in no way trying to ask you guys questions that are going to speak for an entire <laughs> culture and race of people that everyone's experience is an individual's experience, but there's a shared experience to being black in America. And, and we've talked a bit about it previously. And so I just feel, I want to hear what you guys have to say. And, um, I guess first what I, what I'd want to talk about, we'll kind of start from the beginning is you guys have talked a lot about where you, like, I've always heard about Albion where you grew up in Michigan and I've always been like, what a unique place, what an interesting place. And so I kind of wanted to hear what your experience was like growing up in Albion and please talk about your father because he seems like he's from a, he's from a movie. Um, but also, uh, what your experience was like growing up as, as black people in Albion, but also how that trans transferred to once you moved out of Albion and moved into the professional world and moved to LA or moved to Ann Arbor or whatever, what that was, how that, how that changed for you. Um, yeah, I guess I can start. Um, it's really interesting. I think that where we're from is unique, but in a sense, it's also pretty universal in terms of like this history of black folks leaving the South, great migration, heading to the Midwest, heading to the Rust Belt. So like our town isn't, the whole region kind of looks like our hometown. Um, and, you know, demographically, I don't know, I'd say our hometown's probably 30, 40% black. Um, yeah, probably more than that now. When we were growing up, probably like, I want to say 49, 51. Yeah, yeah, and maybe like another 50%, you know, um, white, and then, may, and then uh, you know, 5, 10% Hispanic. Like, I think that, um, and I think there's a lot of towns in the Midwest that are like that. The Midwest is, you know, 
dotted with these little industry, you know, auto industry towns, really factory based um, and was a huge like, you know, financial like you could come if you're a black family, you could come from the south move to the Midwest and make a really good life for yourself in, in places like Michigan, Ohio, um, Wisconsin. Um, but there's also this huge legacy of segregation. And, you know, it was like only certain towns, you know, certain towns would have this population and certain towns would be 100% white. And it was really interesting growing up in a place like that because you'd like get into these insane, like racially charged sports rivalries <laughs> with towns. Yeah, um, I know. I know about those too. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but also, but then in our, in our everyday life, you know, it was a pretty integrated town. You know, I think churches were stayed segregated, you know, through a legacy of redlining. Some of the neighborhoods were pretty segregated. But with that being said, people's lives overlapped in a huge way. And I think the Midwest has that in droves. And I think that the South also does um, with their own, you know, legacy and their own culture. And they're different. And then, you know, like you, you alluded to this earlier, there is also a much larger experience across the whole diaspora where like people that just look like us have shared experience. Um, so, you know, if, if you're black and you're from, you know, where you're from Harlem or Baton Rouge or uh, a tiny town in the Midwest or LA, you know, there are also shared experiences. Um, so I don't know. I think that like what I've always tried to do in my life and um, in my background, you know, you're always just trying to be comfortable as comfortable as you can be around people, like-minded folks. Um, so for me, it's, you know, people that carry my same interest in pop culture and sports and, um, and you know, some people look like me, some people that don't look like me, um, but we at least have the same, like, interest in, and, um, and passions. And I think that, like, in this most recent movement, there has been, like, this huge kind of reckoning where black folks are, like, you know, it's, none of this is new to us. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, and that like, and I think that like a lot of um, feelings and a lot of like anger and sadness and it has been boiled up to the like cultural like consciousness has always existed. It exists, it exists you, you live in it all day, every day. So um, it's interesting to me. It's interesting for me to hear these conversations because that part of you is like, yeah, no shit. Like, that's how we've always felt. But the part of you is also, like, a little it, just excited that the, that the ball's getting pushed forward. Part of you is also very cynical in the sense that, like, nothing's changed. Why do I think it'll change this time? Um, and a part of you is also very frustrated that, like, you know, for people to say that they didn't know about the Oklahoma, uh, you know, race riots 100 years, that's insane to me. And maybe also our background, you know, maybe it's because we had black teachers and, and our parents really – stress like learning about our culture and our history and and they knew and they and they drilled into our heads that like there's plenty of stuff you're not going to learn in school that we are going to impart on you and maybe and maybe i take that for granted and i really thought that that was like what i knew was what everybody knew but um it's been pretty eye-opening to see like this like deep level of ignorance um that, that then colors everybody's reactions to whether it's these protests or it's this push to recognize Juneteenth or it's, you know, big and small. And it's just so interesting to me. It's, it's really, you know, on one hand, you have Colin Kaepernick getting like crucified three years ago for doing something pretty benign. And then on the other hand, you have Goodell apologizing in a vague sense, but not saying his name and not giving him a job three years later. It's like it's my head is spinning right now. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, Kelsey, I'll let you talk because I'm babbling right now. But I think, you know. Overall, there's a net positive. I think we're moving in the right direction, hopefully. 
And, um, and it's really exciting, but also it's, you know, it's depressing, it's stressful. Um, and to kind of put a point on it, like I said earlier, we've lived with this at all times. And despite this, like, knowledge that, like, people that look like us are treated very poorly everywhere we go, we've been treated very poorly in places we've been in. Um, despite all of that, we're still making the greatest art have the best athletes. Like there's like the, there's a certain pride and joy that like you're pushing culture. Your culture is pushing culture forward in the coolest way possible and the best way possible and, and always has and always will. And I think that's like another thing that like, you know, keeps me sane, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, black joy is something that people are also highlighting right now and, and black excellence. And I think that's great. Like let's keep, let's keep, you know, it can't all be depressing. It can't all be a bummer. Um, you know, I think that the cultures thrived uh, despite all the bullshit, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and to that end, I think also growing up in Albion and coming from a place that was pretty integrated and just like culturally forward, you know, we always had exchange students as well. In our high school, you'd have, I think my senior year, we had like almost 18 exchange students in a tiny high school of like 350 kids. Um, so you're always having all these different literal worldviews coming into our community and kind of building out and defining who we are as people. And I felt fortunate enough to be able to just kind of take that perspective to college. And at Michigan, I found myself kind of felt a little bit like I was taking a step back, but my group of friends, you know, it's majority white at Michigan. I was in Delta Gamma. Uh, you know, Kellen was in Fidel. So like the Greek, the Greek houses were in, and then I played rugby at Michigan as well. And so I was in pretty homogenous communities while I was there. But my experiences from Albion growing up with my parents, making sure we were always highly educated about our history and who we are, like my middle names in Swahili. Uh, Albion mm -hmm. High School offered African-American studies, and we were one of the only schools within, I think, a 60-mile radius that actually offered that class. Um, having all of that really influenced who I was. And so then when we went to school, even though I was operating in these really homogenous communities, I was able to like minor in African-American studies and bring my experiences to my group and educate my friends. I've been having a lot of conversation with my white friends recently, obviously about what's been going on. And they were slightly shocked by the things I was saying and bringing up. And I was like, remember this time at this party when the X thing happened and this guy said that thing, that was a microaggression. And they're like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. So it's been an interesting time to very openly have these conversations and kind of force the uncomfortable conversations that I don't think my friends were expecting before. Um, but in being from where we're from, it was, it's made those conversations, I guess for me anyway, a little bit easier to have because I was like, you know, you guys have said you'd love me. You invite me to sit at your table, your parents who oftentimes their political stances like don't align with my, the value of my life, you know, as mm -hmm. a person, yet you guys invite me on your fancy vacations. Um, they, you need to be having these conversations with them as well. Cause if you tell me you love me, you need to be talking about it with them. So like, I think that's been my biggest takeaway so far. It's just hopefully helping to educate people. And I'm thank you, thankful for our background that has inspired all of that and allowed us to have those conversations. Yeah, that's really powerful and unique. And I also think the fact that you're, I think b both of your parents were educators, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Your dad was a coach. And I mean, we don't have to get into too much of his. The, I know we can just talk about stories about him because I think he's hilarious. The stories you guys have told me about him. Um, my favorite story is the one where he told me that he, he ate two bags of those chocolate covered uh, peanut butter filled pretzels. 
and he's just like you can't buy them because he just eats them all downstairs in the basement playing yeah, his bass. Sounds all yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, any any snack you yeah. give him, it's all going to be. But he just sounds like he's such a character and such a unique guy. You know, a football coach and a musician, and uh, yeah, you guys have. You guys are so fortunate to have such interesting parents. Yeah, um, character. yeah characters. But also that you have edu- like literal educators in your house is really powerful too because not everyone has that fortunate uh, ability. And I think that, that that certainly seems like it's it's informed your worldview and allowed you to understand things really uniquely. I think that's great. Um, what sort of examples have you guys experienced – with regards to racism, either overtly or subtly, that stand out for you personally or professionally? Like, you don't have to go through, you can you can give me as many examples as you want, or as little examples as you want, but what are things that stand out that maybe people, well, things that are just overt to just kind of hear what that experience is like, but also things that people might not think uh, white people in, in, in general might that think are, are racist or behaviors or perpetuating um, racist ideas or white supremacist ideas or race, you know, racist institutions that happen somewhat frequently that you guys are always having to kind of rail against and it's at some points I'm sure correct people on. One thing I think, and not to speak for you, Kellen, but that stands out to me sometimes, um, Kellen's wife is white, but they've been together since they were in high school. Um, and when people don't assume that they're a couple, that <laughs> drives me crazy. Even like there's times their babies with them and people will try to separate them in lines, whether it's at an airport or even like, you know, someone's sharing food or something, they will mess that up and not, you know, Kel and Gal will be standing next to each other and people will just ignore the fact that they're together and it just goes completely over their head. Um, Naomi Ekperigan has a really funny joke about that with her fiance, Andy Beckerman, um, in the just blatant assumptions that people make that just because you're interracial doesn't, they don't assume that you would be a couple, which like blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was like, you know, there's a million microaggressions that you kind of live with every day and you learn how to uh, just adjust your life and not let it drive you insane. Um, whether it's getting seated at shitty tables at restaurants or what, there's just a million examples. Um, and that's just life walking through the world in your skin. I would say, like, more systemically, one thing that I – a message I kind of want to get out there just because it's, it's my background. There's this huge push right now. It's like all the, a lot of companies, especially in entertainment, are realizing, like, holy shit, what do we do? How do we fix these problems? How do we start to bend the arc in the right direction? And there's this big push to, like, oh, we need to, like, offer a ton of scholarships. We need to, like, uplift these – downtrodden in charity cases, the, all these poor folks. And and I don't want to, you know, I send love to everybody. I think there's a lot of poor white people that are, you know, um, barred from kind of coming into this industry um, with economic barriers. But in terms of race in particular, I think there's this massive group of upwardly mobile black folks who are creative, who have gone to great schools, that would kill to work in this industry. And the economic barriers isn't the only thing keeping us out. And I think that that's like an easy fix, an easy solution, and a solution that doesn't get at the root of the real problem that like many of these spaces, many of these rooms are unwelcoming, can they be downright hostile? 
I think people don't want to walk and work at a company where the only person that looks like themselves at that entire company. And I think that like, you know, it's a lot of chicken and egg, but like Kelsey said, we're from a pretty integrated city. Um, we can be chameleons. We can kind of exist in multiple spaces. It's a little easier for me, but you know, for somebody who comes from Detroit or whatnot, no matter how much money they have, no matter how well their training is, if it's an unwelcome space, it's an unwelcome space. And I think that that's one of the biggest hurdles we have right now in entertainment and tech and the arts. Like these spaces are literally unwelcome. So, um, and and for people not to feel comfortable in their own skin with their with their hair, with the way they dress, with the way they talk you know like code switching is exhausting and um and i do think that like and also speaking <laughs> speaking for you know an entire group of people constantly and people yeah. what, how, how what do i do here what do i do it's exhausting so i think that like <laughs> there's like a lot of i'm um, so happy that i prefaced everything by saying because you don't have to do that <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I think that like that's a huge a huge huge hurdle that is not being addressed right now. I think that, like I said, there are economic hurdles. I get that. Um, there are, you know, recruitment hurdles in terms of like the spaces we're looking um, to fill our ranks. But there, you know, I think that there are enough qualified um, folks. I think, I, you know, you want the funnel to be as big as possible. But there are enough qualified black folks that come from great schools that, you know, have the means, that have a huge safety net of support. Um, that, that the entertainment industry can still be impenetrable to because it's just an unwelcome space. Hmm. Um, and I think that, like, I, I would encourage, you know, people out there to recognize that and just to work to do better. Um, and it's and it's like, and it's nothing we're going to solve in the next... It's, it's interesting because a lot of these issues bubbled up in the last two weeks, but they've, they're have they systemic and they're not going to be solved in the next two weeks. So, like, yeah. it's, just, it's just work that people have to do every single day. It needs to be a part of your DNA to help fix this problem. And it's not something that you can like quickly fix by coming up with a task force. It's not something you can fix by a press release. And it's not something you can purely fix by just pumping money towards somebody. It's not something you can fix by charity. Mm -hmm. Not to shit on charity. I think it's well worth everybody's like philanthropy and efforts. And I think it helps a lot of folks break down some barriers, um, but there are massive ones that still exist even outside of economics. Yeah, and like I just encourage people to look around, look at who you're hanging out with, look at who you're talking to. If you're saying we, our talent pool of black people is super limited and we don't know where to find more talented black people, and I'm hearing that said to me in meetings, just reach out to me. I have plenty, like so many black creators and writers that I talk to and have relationships with that I'm happy to share with other executives. You know, and I also think making sure you're getting a seat at the table with the decision makers and helping to make those decisions. That's what's going to really infiltrate and help us to change these narratives. Cause if we're not actually getting a room to speak up and make these decisions, the well will never, ever change. Yeah. And I also think part of it is, is becoming the decision makers and yeah. you know, you have, you have gatekeepers in most instances, there are white people that mm -hmm. would then have to allow a black person to become a decision maker, which is gets me sort of to my next point of um, I've been I read uh, White Fragility, which everyone was encouraging everyone to read. And so I read it and um, there's a couple things about it that I found to be really eye opening and interesting. First and foremost, I the thing I noticed immediately was like she spends 
the first like two chapters kind of preparing the white reader for the onslaught of awful things that they've participated in and um, sort of is like prepping them to be like, this doesn't make you a bad person necessarily, but just know that you've been a part of these things, whether you consciously have or unconsciously have, and you have to be aware of that initially. And so as someone who is so good at apologizing because I've fucked up so much in my life, I was immediately like, all right, let's hear it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to kind of hear it. Uh, let's let's hear it. And then she just keeps going on and on. And I'm like, oh, I see what she's doing. She's really going to have to soften the blow. But then I also think when I read it, I was expecting there to be sort of a history of what's happened and being sort of a pragmatic, analytical person wanting to hear solutions. And so I thought it was going to be the book was going to sort of be a math problem. And then on the right side of that would be what the book is telling you to do. But all the book was is a mirror. It just says, here, look at you. Here's what you're doing. And that to me was like, like gave me chills and was really, really, really powerful. And I understand or feel as though I'm beginning to understand things in a way that I thought I, I did, but I never did. And I think part of that is the awakening of, of the self and realizing that you have to be responsible for your own behavior before you can kind of change the behavior of other people around you. But I, I, on the heels of that, I wanted to ask kind of what are examples of things that you've, you've seen in, in like from people that you've either worked with or friends of yours who are white that are sort of effective activities that sort of combat this institutionalized um, and systematic racism? Are there certain particular things that that you've seen either in meetings or just in, in passing that you're like, that's good. That's a behavior that has, that I see that, that, that is helpful. That might be a difficult question, but, uh, no, I, I hear you. I think yeah. that it's tough. There's no silver bullet here. Like it's, yeah. it's systemic. It's, it's built up over hundreds of years. I think that, um, the most effective way to combat all of this, and maybe I'm being short sighted, um, but is to get, more diverse voices into the system. Mm -hmm. You know, like like the the medicine to like solve the like we don't know enough diverse writers. Hire diverse executives. They know diverse writers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's and it, it comes naturally. It comes naturally. For somebody, you know, like you're saying as somebody like yourself who doesn't live and breathe this every day, you kind of have to step outside yourself to say like, how is this affecting how does my how do my actions affect other folks? How does the systems I live in affect um, you know, people of color, black folks in particular. But like, if you have more black executives, more black stakeholders, more black people pulling the levers of power, I'm telling you, it, it just lives in them. It lives <laughs> in you day in and day out. So then like the work is, it's not easier, but the work is like, it's, it's top of mind all day, every day. You know, one example I'll give, we worked together on Southside, the show that we worked our asses off on. Mm -hmm. And we never, we never told dictated and the and the show creators never dictate to us we never dictate to them we need to have a diverse writing room we just brought in voices that could write to the voice of that show it was black creators it took place in a black neighborhood we wanted people that were in and around that neighborhood and naturally we had a kick-ass mostly black writers room mm -hmm. and it wasn't like we had to like really go on that long of a walk to get there so I think if like if we are highlighting black voices, if we are hiring black creators, if we have black executives, this shit takes care of itself in a way. 
Uh, I think there's still plenty of work to do, um, but I think that's that's a shortcut, at least in my instance, and, and like examples in my life, that's a shortcut. Is like just get more diverse voices into the conversations, into the middle of the conversation, so you're not like reaching out and saying, "What do you think about this one thing?" But you're not actually working on it, and that's the shortest shortcut. You know, just mm-hmm. just pump the system through with diverse voices, diverse thought, and not only race, diverse economic backgrounds, people from around the world, people from different. Um, you know, uh, religious backgrounds, uh, people that grew up in cities, people that grew up in the country. You know, I think that like if we as media executives are looking to shine a, a mirror to the world and reflect the world, um, then we have to have the people making decisions that reflect the world. And I yeah. think that's super important. It's interesting you say that because a lot of times when I look at the stuff being made, I'm just like, who is that for? Who? who's who who's gonna watch that what's what's the audience for that and it just seems like it's a bunch of people patting each other on the back for having really good ideas and then you get cats um you know (laughs) uh no offense to andrew lloyd weber or tom hooper i mean you know good good swing but it was a miss but you know i i I understand what you're saying kellen it's kind of like you see some of the decisions being made and you see some of the things going and and it's almost you would think some even like talent choices in certain roles and animation that sort of stuff you're like isn't it obvious that that should be a biracial person or a black person doing that voice or writing that show or being a part of it in some capacity and you'd think it would be more obvious but i think to some people it's just been the status quo for so long that they're just like oh no it's fine we can do it that way it's been done that way before and uh you know that show did well and it's kind of like yeah but it's beyond that now it's more about actually being part of the change by being like no we can't we aren't the ones to tell this story we need help we need someone who can actually tell this story yeah i'll Um, tell you this there's no lack of i mean you we work in the industry we hear ideas all day every day we can only do a certain small percentage of ideas there's no lack of great ideas from diverse storytellers and there's no lack of audience that wants to hear diverse ideas so yeah. just do the work, like do the work. It's, 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 it's there, like it's there for the taking. And if you do it well, it's really successful. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, you know, black people are at the forefront of culture, like our stories resonate. People mm-hmm. like want to hear them. They, you know, whether that's musicians or people identify with their favorite athletes, like, like it's just, I don't know. It's like such a powerful culture that, um, and it has a huge legacy. Like, you know, we've been part of this country since the country was founded. Yeah. Um, we our built family, the country. Yeah, yeah, we built the country. Our family's been here for generations, you know, like. Well, I, re- I remember one time we were in a meeting, Kellen, and someone said something offhand. And I remember being like, ooh, someone was like, well, we're all immigrants. And you're like, no, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no one said anything. And I was like, oh, man, that was. Uh, you're like not really <laughs> and it yeah. was just I mean, it, we're, we're a it's a, mi- it's a mi- micro microaggression that, that's a micro that would be an example of a microaggression right so yeah, we're like yeah. we're all the same we're all immigrants it's like uh-uh yeah. no sir <laughs> yeah another example just like kind of on that piggybacking off that is and i don't know how schools work these days but like one of the most painful exercises you can give young black kids in school is the fucking family tree. Oh yeah. And it's <laughs> oh like, it's, it's brutal. And like, and like, and give them the family tree and tell and not acknowledge and not acknowledge that like our history was ripped and shredded. Yeah. And, and that there's like history. 
obvious rape. And uh, yeah, I mean, even massacres. Yeah, your last name is not your last name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's like, where's your family from? It's like, we don't know. We'll never know. And like, that's an offensive question to ask. And like, and you know, like I said, you grow up in it. You see it every day. You learn to kind of be, you know, wade through the water of it, not drown in it if possible. Um, And and because you got to live your life and you got to be happy. Yeah, as much as you can. Kelsey, I know this, I'm going to ask a very kind of broad question for you, but obviously black women have had it extremely hard for a very long time. Black people in general have had it very hard, but black women, you know, there's, I mean, all sorts of statistics that you can go towards as far as, um, you know, how difficult things have been for black women. But, and again, I don't want you to speak for every black woman, every question (laughs) I ask, but how do you think that your experience has been even more differentiated because of you being a woman and also being a black woman and also being a black woman who's been upwardly mobile and has had to kind of elbow your way in. Cause I know it cause we've talked about it. You've had to really elbow your way in and I think prove yourself probably beyond where you've had to, most people have had to prove themselves. Um, and Kellen, not to admonish your accomplishments because you, you've had to do a lot of the, the same. So, but, you know, I think you probably agree that it's harder for, for a woman in general and, and a black woman, especially. So I don't know if you can speak generally to that point and sorry if it's a clunky question, but I just kind of wanted to see generally how, what your feeling and sentiment was on that. I can only obviously speak to my experience and sometimes there's frustrations that come from being a woman in general and being told to calm down and being a black woman and getting and always navigating the waters of trying to manage your emotions and feelings so you won't get labeled as an angry black woman. You know, I know we had an example from work as we had like a really... Uh, we had an offsite and we had to go to a research presentation <laughs> that was pretty offensive. Um, oh, the way God, they were, oh yeah, my God. You know I just what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the way they were analyzing and depicting our audiences and our shows was extremely offensive. And I remember writing an email to Kent, our pre- the president of Comedy Central at the time, and caveating it with, like, I don't want to come off as the angry black woman here, but, like, I have to express my feelings in this way. And even having to put that caveat up top is frustrating. It's mad, it's maddening. Yeah. And then again, you come back to me like, oh, I don't want to be the angry black woman. Um, so, like, that that has been difficult in just figuring out how to manage emotions, feelings, and then setting those expectations in any sort of room. But I also feel like I'm at an advantage because... I am getting a seat at the table. That's always been my fight from day one is to get a seat at the table and I'm mm-hmm. making it happen um, unapologetically. Like, I don't care. I'm, go- I'm going to get up there and I'm going to tell you why we need these voices and need to amplify black black voices in this way and listen to women like Issa Rae, you know, and Ava yeah. DuVernay. Like, their stories are so important. And I always tell people the things I would have given to have a show like Insecure on when I was 16 years old to see myself reflected in the media in that way as kind of this nerdy black girl. You know, I read Harry Potter growing up. <laughs> I swam, I played soccer, I played rugby. You know, I was in mm-hmm. a white girl sorority. And so figuring out how to operate in these spaces but not lose my voice. Also as a bald woman, like I have alopecia, yeah. so I don't have any hair and hair is such a big deal within the black community. And I remember my dad always telling me when I was growing up, he was he would say, you have, you have three strikes against you, but you're always also a triple threat. 
you know, so just always leaning into that. He was like, you're a woman, you're black and you're bald. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you really have to find who you are and kind of stick to your guns. And I've always carried that advice with me and knowing that, yes, I may be at a disadvantage, but I'm always going to work 10 times harder to get there, which like hopefully one day we don't always have to say that, you know, we were on a call last week and someone's like, I just want to be mediocre. Like we always are aiming for black excellence and especially black women have to aim for black excellence even more. And even the way that black women are depicted in the media, um, Mm -hmm. it's either black excellence or it's on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. How do we hit that middle ground of mediocrity and just being average? You know, one of my friends one time told me, she's like, I just want to make a show about a black stoner. Like she's just a black woman who's a stoner. It just wants to hang out and read books after work and not have to be a nurse or judge or, you know, Olivia Pope um, or then like a a single mom on the other side of it. You know, so like, how are we looking at these narratives? And I always take it as my own responsibility to make sure I'm finding those types of stories out there so that I can give them a platform. That's always going to be the aim, you know, and I know it's hard, but that's just, you know, how I try to approach it is to be super level-headed and ambitious about it. Yeah. But I've, uh, and one of the things that I've noticed about the way that you work and the way you are is that you're also not afraid to like elbow. You're like, I don't, I'm going to, you know, I got, I'm, I'm going to step up here and I'm going to, and Kellen, you've done it too of like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to speak up because if I don't, no one will. And I think that that's, there's bravery in that because that's not necessarily always rewarded in any event. But I think being a black person probably leads to negative outcomes more often than not. Or there's a perception of someone who speaks up or speaks out or gets animated or gets passionate about something as it, it being anger, whereas a white person could do it. And it's like, oh, no, they're just letting some steam off. It's so there, yeah. there's that double standard associated say, though, with it. That, like- it's a, like Kelsey, it's a superpower. You're forged in fire. You like, because you get put through a lot of bullshit, you know how to deal with it. You know how to navigate it. You know, I think one thing that is so encouraging and, you know, obviously you wish, like Kelsey said, this, the, the goal is black mediocrity, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that, uh, that we just get to exist in our own skin, live our own lives and not be punished for it. But, you know, despite the wage gap, despite all the bullshit, Black women also like are some of the, the one of the most educated groups of people in our country, and thrive. You know, th- like I said despite it, despite all the headwinds, mm-hmm. um, have you know really pushed everything forward in such a meaningful way. Um, so, could you only imagine if we remove some of those headwinds, how much further we could go? Uh, and, and I think that's something to like always be mindful of. That like people are thriving despite uh, innumerable hurdles. And if we start to chip away at some of those structures, our potential is so much greater than where we're at right now. And mm-hmm. I think that's like, like, you know, I think that, um, and we've already achieved greatness in so many yeah. spaces. <laughs> yeah. I think like a, 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 sad side effect of this movement is that it's emotionally draining because it focuses so much on pain and, and, and like the literal, like destruction of black life. And I think that that is that resonates. That's visceral, and it's and it's um, and it's it really strikes a chord with people worldwide. That's why you see people protest worldwide because like there's a fucking video of a guy getting murdered. Mm-hmm. But like what is going unsaid is like the like just like the the weight on your shoulders all day every day of people that aren't even getting murdered. And like I think if like we're able to help improve that that like everybody's going to fucking thrive, you know? So 
I don't know. I think that like a lot of the stuff is systemic, but Ian, like you said, I think there's also things you can do on an individual level. And one thing, you know, Kelsey and I have been going out to a lot of these um, Black Lives Matter protests and hearing all these speeches that like they resonate so well and like it's it's so preaching to the choir. Like I, I've agreed and been on board from day one, but I'm getting all these like little nuggets that like just reinforce my worldview. And um, something we heard a week ago was like, we're not looking for allies. Nobody's looking for an ally in this fight. We're looking for accomplices. We're looking for people to roll mm-hmm. up their sleeves and dig into it with us to tear down these systems, to not just like say, I see you and I understand why you're upset right now, but to like actually do the work to fix the problem. And I think that's like, that that was really powerful for me to hear. And like, we were also at a town hall. There's been so many town halls, so many speeches, <laughs> so many marches. Um, it's overwhelming. I'm kind of like, you know, I, I do, I eat it up and I enjoy it. And I, and I want to be a sponge, but also it's a, it's a lot right now. But so well, Kellen, we all like, know that you love meetings. You're a big yeah, guy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something I heard yesterday was like, you know, and talking about black people existing in these predominantly white spaces is that, you know, a worldview to look at it. It's so interesting is that we are um, infiltrators. We're able to like get into the system, learn the system, control the system. And then from a position of power enact some change. So like, that's that's really encouraging and that's really empowering to say like oh shit like you know can i work my way up to a position of power where i'm able to push the voices and the stories and the faces i want to hear and see into the cultural consciousness because we work in media because we have these massive platforms because millions of people are able to see the content that we're able to work on um and then how do i from a position of power then you know keep push the needle forward And, you know, I think that, like, the activism and the work is so important. But I think from my perspective, the most damage I can do because of my skill set, because of my expertise, because of my career is to just flood the marketplace with a diversity of faces, a diversity of thought, a diversity of backgrounds. Um, So we're not seeing the same. Like Kelsey said, it's either like this, like, super Negro, like, insane like person that can just do everything and anything and is is the absolute best that your your huxtables your what uh olivia popes and whatnot um or it's these like stories rooted in deep pain you know it's like you know these stories of trauma it's trauma porn and um there is the biggest middle that we aren't seeing right now and i think you know that that's what i'm really interested in and that's what i'm interested in and, and championing those voices, pushing those stories forward. And even like a show like Southside, you know, I'll go back to that because that's one we've worked on together. It's one that all three of us have been involved with really closely. It's like that show checks off so many cool boxes in my mind. It's like it, it takes place in a working class environment. It doesn't highlight pain. Mm. It actually highlights joy, you know? Um, you know, like when do you see the joy in a poor neighborhood? Um, and, and Southside's able to do it. It highlights humanity. And as specific as that show does get with, you know, the high school that the character went to or the slang of the South Side of Chicago, um, it also is so universal in the sense that, like, Simon and Kay are just trying to provide for their families. They're just trying to hustle. They're just trying to, like, do good by their friends and family, have a good time doing it, um, and keep their head above water. And that's, like, that's why that show is so powerful. And I think that's why the show connects and was so well-received uh, critically. I think that's why fans are really digging it. Um, and, you know, my goal is just to do do it 
more and do it bigger and do it better and never stop. Yeah, I think I think that um, there's just universal themes in that show, and I think that uh, you know a, a big part of it also is just that like when you interact with people that you might not be familiar with interacting with, you just see that everyone just kind of wants the same thing in every culture everywhere. Yep, I mean, look, absolutely. there's outliers and there's people that want to do harm to other people for reasons that you could never wrap your head around. Those people exist. That's a reality. But the majority of every single person you run into at the core, they're just like, I just want to have a job that I'm happy at a family that I can provide for. And just like my little spot on this earth where I can just kind of do good things and be happy. And that's what everybody wants at the core. I think most people, and I say everybody, most people, they want that. Um, and so when you just start, you live in a place like LA or you grow up in a place like you guys did where there's so much interaction with people, you, there's a normalization of like, we're all kind of, we're all mixed up together in this thing. Like we're, we're preoccupied mm -hmm. with such bullshit all the time. But unfortunately the reality that we live in is that bullshit has led to different realities for different types of people. And so um, I think again, Kellen, to your point, it like bends back to your personal responsibility of like being a good person caring about how you're going out into the world, what your intentions are, being okay with someone saying, hey, you probably shouldn't do that and here's why, and not being like, well, I'm not a racist. It's like, well, we're not <laughs> saying you are. We're saying maybe don't do that behavior because of these reasons, that sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, people individually need to be okay with fucking up and owning it. And I think that's a yeah. really huge step for a lot of people. You know, I mean, one of, the, like I said earlier, I mean, like when you've messed up as much as I have, you get really, really good at it. But, uh, you know, a lot of people probably haven't messed up as much as I have. So they don't have that or they have and they just haven't come. They have. They're just not willing to admit yeah, it. Yeah. Not to yeah. say that I'm at some different point in my life, but it just came to the point where I was like, I need to start admitting this stuff because it's getting really bad for me. So it's like <laughs> I need I need to start like making sure that I kind of make some ch wholesale changes here because my wife's unhappy with me or my family's not talking to me, that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> where it's like pretty obvious it's you. And I think... Well, I do think, you yeah. know, like to, to your point, I do think it's like also being open and able to crack your head open. Yes, yeah. Like a small example, and it's, and it's so layered and it's so... There's m multiple layers of it, but like the gut reaction to Black Lives Matter was this pushback of All Lives Matter. And I think that there was this this people who didn't know black folks or knew them at arm's length and didn't, didn't know and respect them as humans and their respect their humanity thought of it as a zero sum game. They hear Black Lives Matter and it was an offensive statement. It was a like, my life doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. If, if Black Lives Matter, then then my life doesn't matter. And I think that's a cruel just like the cruel irony of that is it just highlights your worldview and your mm -hmm. worldview is it that um equality is zero sum so like if black lives matter then white lives don't matter yeah yeah because your worldview is white lives matter therefore black lives don't matter and like that's it's it's crazy to me so like being able to like just pull back crack your head open realize that like the world gets viewed through different eyes in different ways and and allowing space for people to say and like the the whole BLM movement, I, I think that it's been a lot of stuff glommed onto it in a cool, interesting way. But I don't, you know, I'd be remiss to not say 
the whole movement is just to get killer cops in jail, to hold killer cops accountable, and 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 to prevent these tragedies from happening moving forward is just to reduce the scope and power of police, to defund the police, to make them smaller. We shouldn't have armed occupation in these neighborhoods um, with people that are highly yeah. untrained and the people that are virtually immune to the law um, yeah. because it's led to tragedies and, and nonstop tragedies for hundreds of years. And like, and I think that that, that message is so clear and so succinct um, and I think that, like, I, I want to push back every day I get to that, like, you know, I think people in the movement appreciate a broader sense of anti-racism, a broader sense of equality, but, like, in its root, it's to hold cops accountable and to just reduce the um, instances in which they can kill people and get away with it. Also, just to, like, add to a point earlier, like you said, you know, traveling, being able to see, you know, I grew up playing sports and like I and I as a wrestler I wrestled on the national team I got to kind of like dip in and out of like small towns travel with people get really close and like I think sports for me sports and comedy are two of the biggest like equalizers yeah equalizers they break down walls everybody can laugh at Dave Chappelle Mm -hmm. you know everybody can laugh at Mitch Hedberg you know like it doesn't like like just barriers just collapse same with sports like sports is um for the most part, a meritocracy, you know, the best athletes are going to get, fill these teams and, and the, and the fans are going to be on board with, you know, if you're a Laker fan, you're going to like all the Lakers, not just yeah. the white ones. So, yeah. so like, it's, it, it is, it, there, there are these cool instances where like they they can kind of, you know, both media, comedy and sports are a little ahead of the game in terms of breaking down barriers and breaking down mm-hmm. walls. So I don't know. That's where I've like existed. That's where I've like been able to learn the most, you know, traveling around with, uh, you know, fellow athletes, traveling around producing comedy. And I think that like, you know, that just wealth of perspectives and that and that ability to learn and grow from other humans around you is so important. And hopefully, you know, people in this world are able to do that more, you know, as much as they possibly can. Um, and when I say traveling, you know, obviously, you know, a cool trip to Europe to see a completely different culture is, is so important, but like there's stuff that's so tangible and so available at, you know, a car's ride away, a, a gas tank away from us. So many, especially if you live in a city like LA, so many cool communities that you can dip in and out of and learn from that. Like it's, it's all so much more tangible than you, uh, would believe. Mm. Is there any portion of sort of the black lives matter platform that you personally don't agree with a hundred percent, any of their sort of um, anything that they've said or any of their, cause you know, it's like a movement can, can be great, but not everything is for everyone. And so I don't know. And the answer to this question, just be like, no, I agree with it. But I'm just always curious of like, we like to cover everything with a broad brush, but there's nuance yeah. to everything. And so a, a particular, portion of their platform, you may personally be like, well, I don't a hundred percent agree with this thing or that thing. Is there anything that they've said, or you've heard at any of those meetings where you've been like, I don't know if I fully agree with that. The larger message. Yes. But are there particular things that you've heard that you personally are kind of like scratch your head at? Yeah, or, or... I would, I would say that, um, it's all a sliding scale. And I think yeah. that like, for the most part from my, you know, my own knowledge base, my own perspective, the meetings I've attended, the, the speeches I've heard, I, my worldview really aligns. Everything they're saying makes sense. 
one thing I see to learn more about and really wrap my head around is um, a massive anti-capitalist bent that like, mm-hmm. I just got to figure out like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, cause I, I participate, we all participate in it and, um, and how, is there an equi- equitable way to participate in it? Some would say absolutely not get rid of it. So like, I think that's one thing that like, you know, Kelsey and I were at Beverly and Fairfax and, and, and we were, you know, going along with all the chants. And then at one point, they chanted, fuck the Grove. And then the whole crowd kind of went, eh. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, it was so Everyone loves the Grove. Yeah, everyone loves yeah, the Grove. Really, they got good parking. Yeah. <laughs> Farmer's market is yeah. dope. Yeah. yeah, so like, that was like such a That's funny... a bridge, that was a bridge too far was fuck the yeah, Grove. Yeah, it was like, you know, fuck the police. Yeah. Fuck this, fuck that. And it was like, fuck the Grove. And then the whole crowd kind of was like, meh. <laughs> It's just and again, it's just it's just me learning, me yeah. like understanding, um, me figuring out how I fit into it, how I, I help either build something up or tear something down. Um, but I don't know. For the most part, I am so uh, so into the fight and so on mm-hmm. board. And like and and these things are so like they feel like common sense, but it's gonna take a lot of work to chip down. I mean, it's it's wild the the, the a lot of influence and power that police unions have and the ways the laws are written, like. I think that, you know, you, you hear on Twitter, all these people saying arrest Bri- the killers of Breonna Taylor. I don't know. How does that even know, happen? Enough, but I yeah. don't think, I think the laws are written in a way that like it's impossible. And that's yeah. so sad to me. And, and, uh, and I think that's why it hasn't happened yet. You know, I think literally there's nothing to do and it's, and it's insane to me. Which feels um, so illogical. Like you can't even wrap yeah. your head around the idea that someone would kick down someone's door and murder them in the middle of the night in cold blood and they're not being held accountable for it. I mean, the and fucking... that's where we have to get to the root and rewrite the laws. We like, you yeah. know, like we, and when we talk about infiltrating the system, we have to infiltrate on all levels and continue to push this message that BLM pushes of defunding the police. And I know that like sounds like such a radical ideology, but when you look into it and you think about, you know, I'm sure plenty of people have seen this meme of, you know, let's defund the police and people think it's radical, but like we've been defunding education for years. Like yeah. Our high school that we grew up and went to in Albion closed, no longer right? exists. Yeah. yeah. Our entire school district is gone. And I even had experiences in high school, you know, where we start, we have our officer liaisons, but they started to increase uptick, you know, the amount of police that were in our schools. And had a situation where our officer liaison, they were taking away our backpacks. They're saying we could no longer carry backpacks between classes and our officer liaison, I was in student council, so I like tried to fight it because like we only have X amount of time between changing classes, block scheduling, et cetera, et cetera. And I went and I was talking, having kind of a town hall group meeting with her. And she looked at me and she said, when I see you carrying a backpack, I see a criminal. And she wasn't from Albion. She'd never been in our schools. She didn't know the students. She didn't have relationships with us. So when I, you know, and that was experience, that was what, 15 years ago when I was in high school. And those types of things happen all the time. I was a straight A student, got grades, went to Michigan, you know, now live in LA and have done all the affluent things I've done. Um, but when you go back to the core again, like Kellen said, of BLM's message, it is to defund the police. And though it's radical, you take two steps away to educate yourself about it. And it's just honestly not that radical at all. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think yeah. across the board, I, I agree with everything they're saying. The capitalism one is one that, yeah, I definitely want to do more research about and be better educated on their stance on it. But every, like pretty much everything across the board, just like base level, it's to be empathetic. Yeah. You know, it totally makes sense. Just be an empathetic person and value human life 
at just what it is, a human life, and respect people to be allowed yeah. to live yeah. their lives the way they want to live their lives. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, – it's really interesting. You've heard – I've heard the police chief here in L.A. speak out and say we need more money because we're being tasked with too many jobs. Mm. You know, because of how the system has operated and the atrophying of resources. Yeah, they do everything. Social services. They, they do yeah, everything. So, and yeah. like, and I agree with them. Like, yeah. police shouldn't be mental health experts. But like, instead of giving them more money, hire people shrink that their can purview do it. Yeah. and yeah. then yeah. replace them with people that actually are trained. Yeah. And have more than eight yeah. weeks of services. eight weeks of an academy. Like, you can't be a professional at eight weeks of academy and get a fucking gun and be immune to the laws if you shoot somebody with it. Um, and then that's all to say we also know that these institutions are infiltrated and from the top to the bottom have this rot of white nationalist groups yep. and bullies and racists. Like, and that, that's a whole nother layer of, mm-hmm. of yeah. institutional like just bullshit that needs to be torn down. So like they go hand in hand, but like – and that's why I think there's this huge push to like just tear it down and rebuild it. Because, you know, reform has not worked. There's been a reform bent, you know, there's a consent decree, LAPD, the federal government took over the police department 30 years ago, and um, we're still back where we started, you know? Like, so so reform is not working, and I think that's a, a huge message. And, um, you know, it's, I think we're able to crack, you know, there's a crack in the window, and hopefully we're able to, like, punch through it, and hopefully we're able to, like, cause some long lasting change. You know, I think that like there's ebbs and flow in all of these uh, systems. And I think there's huge leaps and evolutions and hopefully we're at the precipice of one and hopefully people keep their foot on the gas. And while everybody yourself and everybody included is actually their, their ears are open, their minds are open, their hearts are open and they're willing to at least hear people out and at least in, you know, in name, they're saying that like people want to actually figure this shit out. Uh, hopefully, we are able to um, actually push for some meaningful change, and and we'll see. It's going to be a fucking fight, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, hopefully, we have enough momentum that it's uh, it carries us through to something. Why do you guys? And I know I know like the 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 surface answer, but I, I would want you guys to, to dig even deeper of like the systemic answer. Why do you guys feel that? The Colin Kaepernick was so reviled for his act. What? It, what? I, I mean, think, I, I mean, it, and I go. This is a loaded question, and I have my I have my beliefs as to why. But I, um, I would always make the joke, Kellen, uh, that the only thing that offended me about Colin Kaepernick was that he wasn't very good his last season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I didn't. I, he his offense. His play was offensive to me. I always looked at you know. I always looked at what he did as as like I get. I I under. I don't get it. But he should be he should be entitled and allowed to do that. And what he's doing is, in my estimation, was there's a standard that he believes his country needs to live up to, and it is not living up to his, the standard for him and for people within his community. And he's doing the peaceful thing of just, I'm letting everyone know that I'm, a, I'm unhappy about this. And a lot of other people are too. You're looking, but at, what, it through, you're looking at it through rational eyes, dude. Like yeah. you have to realize that like, and it's, it was so interesting this last couple of weeks. This has been three years and um, Lynn from the Chargers releases a statement. He says, I, my, I was pretty heartbroken that, Cap's message was um, hijacked 
and misinterpreted. Why and, didn't you say anything um, then? Yeah. And it came off as like, and, and people just didn't understand what he was trying to do. Then two days later, Drew Brees says, I will not stand for anybody disrespecting the flag. And it's like, holy shit. After yeah. three years of back and forth, we are where we started because there's this massive misinterpretation of his goals. So that's that's the rational, like, surface level, like, something was misinterpreted. But there's a much broader sense of, like, owners don't like being told what to do. The, Especially um, for a, a black athlete being the one dictating exactly, that. Exactly. And the, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the majority of the fans, NFL has a really white fan base, a pretty diverse um, in terms of players, but in terms of the fan base, very white. And it just was like, you know, it struck a nerve in the worst way of, um, you know, white people being told, you know, you, you see it all the time. We see it on our Comedy Central social accounts. A lot of people white people in particular say, keep politics out of sports, keep politics out of my entertainment. I don't want to think about that. And that's, you know, a huge position of privilege to not have to think about the humanity of people. You know, that whole shut up and dribble argument is, is, yeah. is so offensive. So like, I, I think that like cap the huge blowback to him was that he was telling people to like do some self-reflection and he was trying to highlight a massive problem. And then I think there also is this defensive reaction to like, you know, I participate in the system of white supremacy, but I'm not a racist. I'm not um, actively hurting somebody. So why are you coming at me? Mm. Um, And like what Kappa's doing, and it's so interesting, like all these like, I was watching English soccer yesterday and all the players are taking a knee before the game. I'm sure when the NBA comes back, there'll be peaceful protests. And it's all so infuriating to me that like the person who started it, who's the tip of the spear, who had the most to lose and lost it, is still blackballed. Uh, Even in Goodell's apology, he did not mention Cap by name. It's like it's beyond offensive and it's so disappointing. And even though we are, like I said, pushing in the right direction, there are like massive gaps and like, and just respect this man that like put it all on the line and lost it all. Yeah. And, uh, and at least acknowledge him by name. Um, someone said something at Kellen. I don't know Kelsey, if you'll understand this joke, but someone said, I mean, you know, he's certainly good enough to be a backup in this league in the NFL, at least, at least, I mean, yeah. I mean who knows as he's matured, maybe he'd be, even be a better quarterback than he was. But, um, I mean, led a team to the Super Bowl. He was pretty effective, but towards the end, again, I didn't think he was playing very well, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but like someone was like, I mean, we signed Mike Glennon. Why didn't, why you're telling me we couldn't <laughs> there, sign Callan Kaepernick? Of, like, yeah, there's plenty of players in the NFL that are much worse than Kaepernick. Like Kaepernick, Kaepernick's not bad. Like he's not no, bad. No, he's not he's, bad. He's no, a great he's, professional athlete. Yeah. He's, well, he he's spoke out against the, he spoke out against the owners. The owners yeah. don't, they, they don't they want like, that. That gets punished. That. Yeah. 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 And, um, and there are so many people willing to, um, cause a huge star, cancel season tickets, burn jerseys publicly. Like, and no all right, go for like, it. Yeah. Leave us out of it. And that's the, that's also the, the bummer with the NFL. These these rosters are massive. The the players, you know, names and images aren't as prevalent. They wear helmets. It's not like in the NBA, those players have a platform. They are uh they have such a huge voice. They're they're the engine of the league. Mm-hmm. Um and the NFL is more it's what on the what's on the helmet, you know. So I do think that the power dynamics allowed him to just get crucified in the in the worst way possible. And there wasn't any recourse. And, you know, and he had like-minded teammates and colleagues that, that fought for him and stood up for him. And it just, 
it just didn't work. And like I said, it still hasn't been rectified. He's still blackballed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but I appreciate his you know sacrifice, and I think that he has pushed the conversation forward. I saw Trump the other day said that like he should get a shot, which is wild, but. You know, like it's yeah, just like, like but push this whole narrative. Yeah, but no, it's not him. Like, but just imagine, uh, just think about the 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 way the conversation has shifted in three years. It's remarkable. Yeah. Um. Again, so much work to be done, but like the fact that like people are taking these worldwide, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, and, I mean, they even like Megan Rapino and the women's soccer team did it for trans and and uh, you know LBGTQIA people, and it's it's taken on a life beyond simply yeah. what he intended, which I think is really powerful too. So yeah. Yeah. It I, might I, feel a little too little too late, but it's at least yeah. something. And, yeah. uh, and you have to, you know, you have to celebrate your victories. Excellent. Well, I don't know. Is there anything that you guys would want to say to the millions of listeners out there right now? <laughs> that, is there anything that, that, uh, that we didn't touch on that you think is important or, or would want to talk about? Um, I just, I, I can't thank you guys enough for, talking to me about this stuff and i think it's great and i also uh if, if so before i even do that kelsey i want to apologize about something what what'd you do so years ago we went and we saw i i thought of because i was thinking to myself after reading these books and and what have i done where what are, i mean i'm sure i've done something i'm aware of but one thing i did once that i didn't think had anything to it and now when i think about it was really short-sighted and wrong of me so i owe you an apology we went and saw Kamal Bell at uh, the Coronet. Do you remember mm-hmm. that show? Yeah. And he's, I mean, there's, he's objectively wildly talented. And I've always, I, I, lo- I think he's really great. I really liked him. But he, his whole set was about race. Yeah. And, and I thought he was like very, very adept. And he was, you know, he's like, he can like kind of do it like a symphony. He's really good at it. But I remember you asked me like, what'd you think of the show? I was like, man, you know, I think he's really great, but. I just, I want to know more about him. All he did was talk about race. And when I've done a little bit more digging and reading and understanding, like he's talking about race because it is him. It's because it's been forced. It's been forced to be him. And so my comment was like, I want to hear about his wife and his kids and more about like his life. And he's like, no, his life is a huge part of his life is this. And he's taken it to a degree of, you know, holding a mirror up to people and and doing those sorts of things. But also it's been forced upon him that this is a huge thing in his life. And so why wouldn't he then celebrate it and talk about it when he does his stand-up? So I apologize you for my ignorant comment. And I'm sorry (laughs) that I said that. That is a a microaggression and that is a kind of a white supremacy type of thought but it's also reflective of your experiences you wanted to hear more about his life because you wanted to find a way to relate to him so that the comedy would make sense to you you know so could so it could feel relatable i found that set to be extremely relatable as a black person you know like he's digging into things that that you know i've been black every 31 years like since the day i was born um and so i think that's another thing like as you say like people open, you know, Callan says, crack your heads open, like open your heart and your mind to be empathetic about these things and understand why people are talking about it and the way they're talking about it, even if it's making you uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think I'd also say that the like, point. the only thing that I would say to add to that is like, I think people really need to realize and try their hardest to 
level set to reset the level that cis white men isn't the default and anything yes. outside of that isn't like a stretch or something special or something unique mm-hmm. like it's just like there's a million different defaults and i think that like if people are able to do that and that's you know a legacy of leaders a legacy of stories are being told but people are able to like you know it's not special or unique to be you know asian or black or a woman or you know identify you know differently sexually like it's just it's that's just who that person is um so i think like resetting your default getting actually erasing the idea of a default um can really help people then you know enter every situation like you know let me try to see the world through their eyes i have my eyes let me see the world through their eyes um and i think just we just had an overabundance of you know, influence, storytelling, everything has come from that, you know, position Perspective. of white, yeah. white power, white privilege, white supremacy. Um, but, you know, we, uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. yeah. And I think also, Kelsey, to your point, it was like, after 40 minutes of hearing him do that, I was like, he's really good at this. Wow. But maybe there was a subconscious part of me. Maybe this is making me uncomfortable. Can you talk about like, what do you like to eat? You know, like, so it's even like beyond simply a worldview thing of like, there was discomfort in having to take that very uh, bad tasting medicine of like, this is, you know, this is what my life is. Yeah. What too Kellen was, was Kellen was saying earlier that people have to just, understand that this is our reality all the time mm-hmm. you know yeah. this is this is the reality for us all the time and at a base level this is how we have to approach these things um and just understanding that his point of view is influenced by his entire life and that yeah. his life might be a little different than yours and that's not to say it's you know it's still that still can be a good comedic point of view that is relatable so even like i was talking to my roommate manny the other day about white fragility and just the terminology behind that. And he, he'd never heard the term and a lot of his white friends are reading it. He's Mexican American and he's fresh. He was frustrated by the term. He's like, why do, why are white people fragile? Why do we have to hand this to them in a nice way and give them a pat on the back and hold their hand through digesting these things? Um, and I thought that was a really interesting point and just something to think about in general and knowing that like for the history of forever, people, especially in American society, that aren't cis straight white men have always had to take these things on in a difficult way. It's mm-hmm. never been easy for us and no one's ever been there to hold our hands. Um, so I think, yeah, just for white people to understand that would be very helpful <laughs> Yeah, and helps to just move the conversation forward. Yeah. And I think uh, to that point, understanding and empathizing is different than ever realizing what it actually is like. And so I think you have to kind of come from that place. Like, oh, I hear what you're saying. It's like, no, you don't. You, you're, yeah. you're listening it to it, but you, you, you're not, you're not hearing it kind of in yeah. a way. I don't or know living if that makes it. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. I um, will say the, the beauty of that. I love that. I didn't know that Kamal Bell story, but like the beauty of that though, and the beauty of comedy and storytelling is like artists are able to bear their souls. They're able to take you into their heads and you do with stand up, with comedy, with storytelling in general, you get a cool insight into people like Chappelle's recent, uh, half hour, was, was great like the perfect the perfect medicine i needed like yeah. and it wasn't like he was angry he was sad he was feeling all the feelings i was feeling but he was able to because he's such a genius and such a great artist he was able to put words behind it and tell cool stories and make me laugh and that's like that's comedy 
firing on all cylinders. And the way he tied it into his like that was my grandfather who called for his for his mother. This isn't new. this is like this is I feel we're all feeling this still. Uh, was like, oh my god, this is very poignant and important to hear. Um, but uh, you know, back to to just talk a little bit about Manny's point about the white fragility. Um, problem and she dives into that kind of in the book a little bit she goes like in depth about um how she's this is the only way she's been able to be effective with it and to your point like why does it have to be that way but but she as as someone who's a you know like a diversity analyst and specialist has has tried every different angle and this is the way that she's had to do it and i certainly understand what manny's point is and what your point is for sure but it's interesting, though, that that's something that that Manny felt and that you you feel as well, and that in the book she does address it, and it's kind of shocking that she has to do it that way, which is kind of unfortunate for her. But you know, hope maybe that that'll spur more more books that maybe slam it kind of in a way that's more direct. I know that there's other books that I want to read that that I think do approach it in a different way. So, but I think I mean I'm going to let you guys go. I know you have busy lives, but I I really really deeply appreciate you guys talking to me about this i'm going to kind of wholesale apologize if i said anything stupid uh <laughs> we're gonna put that out there um but uh i love you guys and i i appreciate everything uh that you have brought to my life i really do yeah thanks for having us let's have us yeah. on when on a one where we can just talk about some bullshit though <laughs> sports music yeah. comedy I, well definitely i'll have you i have you guys on i mean i've only done five so it's not like yeah, yeah. Just, you know yeah no one's gonna be like well why now i mean you know uh, but yes we yeah. will definitely have you back on um maybe just to talk about michigan football and how they just can't seal the deal something like that um uh, just as depressing <laughs> um but i thank you guys so much i appreciate it all right thanks, thanks for having us we love and miss you yeah Love you guys, too. All right. See you, dude. Bye, y'all. Bye. That was Kellen and Kelsey Parker. I thank them for sharing their thoughts and experiences. This was educational and productive for me, and I hope that it was for you as well. I encourage you to think about ways that you can actively help. What are things you can do to help forge a future of equality for all? As Kellen said, we don't want allies. We want accomplices. And what better a mission than one that preaches equal rights? I'm encouraging and inviting you to be open, be compassionate, be mindful, be kind, and be okay with having your beliefs or ideas challenged. As one of my mentors used to say when he didn't agree with something, I'm happy to be wrong. Think about that the next time you're clinging to some long-held belief. Now is the time to listen and be an advocate for positive change. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. This just is.